People want more democracy, not less. It's time to talk progressive politics and practical solutions with Joy Silver. Outspoken from Radio 111. Now, here's Joy. Thank you so much. Uh, my name is Joy Silver. This is Outspoken, and you're listening to Radio 111. Well, today I'm here with none other than, of course, the famous John McMullen. And also joining us live in the studio is Carlos Garcia from Drive for Five, a nonpartisan group of Palm Desert residents who advocate for five voting districts in the city of Palm Desert in the Coachella Valley right here in California. But before we hear from him today, I would just want to let you know our subject is democracy. Is it dead or is it alive? Or is it on life support? Yet we're bombarded daily with information about what's happening. And one of the things we saw just happen this weekend was the Women's March, uh, several women's marches in our particular area, but also across the country. Because without marching, there is a great fear that our democracy will be totally dead. And many people are doing what they can to have it on life support. And the problem is we can't fight a war if we don't know where the battle is and we can't protect ourselves from the enemy unless we recognize the camouflage its soldiers are wearing. They wear the costumes of the Crusades, insisting that they and they alone hear the voice of God and no one and nothing else matters because from their point of view, it is the only way to live. Well, let me tell you something. God speaks to many people, but this nation is not a nation of a God defined by any one person or persons. This country, in fact, was founded not to just have freedom of religion, but freedom from religion. We've got to stop the barbarians at the gates of our democracy, these destroyers of democracy, and our weapons is to take power on every local level and nowhere is it clearer than we have to take our power back it than the state of kentucky that's right our first guest will be paula setzer kissick and she's a democrat running for kentucky senate district 12. that's right kentucky with our favorite mcconnell reigning over the state of kentucky and all of the republicans if we can still call them that in this country so, Paula, uh, let's have a conversation. All right, that sounds good. I can hear the boos right now from all the people that are thinking Mitch McConnell. Oh my! <laughs> Please don't hold it against me. Oh, my goodness. Well, no one's holding that against you. We see you as a warrior woman out there in the field. Now, I understand that your district is in the southern suburban part of the city of Lexington. And back in 2018, you ran as an unknown grassroots teacher, and now you're running again in this district against a 20-year Republican incumbent. The last time you came out, only 772 votes out of the 53,000. Do I have that information right? That is correct. Uh, we kind of did the impossible, really, in 2018 and really shocked the state, to be honest. Shock treatment. Well, okay, I think uh, Kentucky can use some of that shock treatment. Tell us, what are you running for exactly and why? So I'm running again for the Kentucky State Senate. As you said, in 2018, I, to, to just make it clear, I've never in my life ever wanted a political career. I never even donated to a political candidate until I did it for myself. In 2018, as the first person. 
But as a teacher candidate, I stepped up. You all, I'm sure listeners are aware, there was a big push for teacher candidates across the nation back in 2018. And my particular senator had a very poor record of voting against public education. She was a 20-year incumbent. And frankly, when I started asking around for people uh, who's going to run against her, Democrats, because I wanted to volunteer, everybody kept saying, well, nobody's running against her. And I just decided for the moment to throw my hat in the ring, and that's how I got into it. So this time around, I should have no excuse, right? So I know exactly (laughs) what's involved with campaigning and running a race now. But it's what you said about democracy, dead or alive. I really gave it serious thought as to whether or not I wanted to run again in 2022. Because I know you know very well, there is a lot of work involved and a lot of putting your life on hold while you try to what I think of as trying to do the right thing. And what pulled the trigger for me on 2022 was I realized that democracy is not dead yet, in my opinion, but it is on life support. Mm. And I felt like I was positioned due to all the hard work that we did in 2018 and the name recognition that we grew, that I felt like almost that I had a responsibility to run again and to try to make a difference. It's interesting that you talk about teacher candidates. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that, because it seems like when you're on the campaign trail, that is exactly what candidates do. They educate the public, and I can see the tie-in there, but I'd like to hear it from your point of view. Yes, that would, you know, I would see it that way as well, and I think that's how my team and I approached it back in 2018, and we will approach it again in 2022. And I'll give you a little anecdote, because I think this is where it speaks to the strength of having teachers run as, as uh, legislators or any kind of political candidate. So I started off my first canvassing where you knock the doors, and I had done about 10 households, and everybody had told me when they were teaching me what to do, that I was supposed to introduce myself with my name. So the first 10 houses, I did that. And pretty much right away, people are like, yeah, I'm busy, blah, blah, blah. So after door number 11, I thought, you know what? I'm going to lead differently. And so what I did was when I introduced myself, I said, hi, I'm a Fayette County teacher who's running for state Senate. And I'd like to talk with you a little bit. And then I said my name. It was like daylight and dark at the doors as soon as I began to do that, because people then were ready more ready, if you will, to listen to what I had to say. And that gave me the opportunity to do that education, like you said, to try to explain about issues and ask them for their feedback and their concerns. That's a very interesting uh, way to approach a door because you only get X amount of minutes to get the attention of somebody, even though they're standing in front of you. But I'm I'm really interested in that you didn't really, um, you didn't announce your party candidacy at that point in time. You you announced your teacherness. <laughs> the, the fact I did. That, yeah, and I can see that that um, that probably made a big difference there because people weren't already set up to either open or close the door at that point in time. I think their curiosity. You know, they were curious about why do I have a say? You know, that's my county, by the way, guys. That's district here. I think they were just curious about why do I have a teacher knocking my door, and it gave me, like you said, that opening, that moment to to get them to listen. Well, you told me something that I thought was particularly interesting, and that does have to do with party registration. And I I know you were once a Republican, and now Mm -hmm. you've become a Democrat. So let's talk about that first, and then give me an idea. How does a Democrat win where you are? (laughs) So, yes, I used to be a Republican. And gosh, I guess it's been about four years now that probably that I've changed my registration. And so I changed to a Democrat because I feel like the time... 
had arrived, if you will, has arrived for a lot of people, where your political party does say something about you as a person. Now, prior to that time, I never believed that. And the reason why I say that is because I grew up in a household where I had one parent a Republican and one a Democrat. Literally in my family, nobody ever talked about political parties, Hmm. ever, growing up. Like, that was not a thing. And so when we talked about candidates like who somebody that was running, it was just about the person and the person's name. Now, I'll say this. I grew up in eastern Kentucky, and for anybody out there in California who's not sure about that, it's Appalachia. So it is the mountainous area of, of Kentucky where the coal mines are and that type of thing. And so, obviously, you know, it's more local. It's not an urban area, very rural and so forth. So you know the people who are running, correct? Yeah. We just never talked Republican and Democrat, mm. ever. And so, in some ways, it was a convenience almost in that when it came time to register to vote, I told my mom, I said, I want to be an independent. And she said, well, that's not going to do you any good in Kentucky. (laughs) She said, you'll never get to vote in a primary race. And I'm like, well, which one do I register for? And she said, well, our county, which is Johnson County in eastern Kentucky, it's a very heavily red uh, county. And she said, if you want to vote in the primaries here and make a difference, you register as a Republican. That's 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 how you made that first decision. Yes, it, it was it simply came literally down to almost like a practical mm-hmm. decision. Mm-hmm. And so all these years, it's funny because I think back and I look back at who I voted for, whether it's presidential or whatever. And honestly, I probably ninety some percent of my votes were for Democrat. Looking back, but um, so how does know, how does it, a Democrat it never win? Matter, but how does a Democrat? How does a Democrat win? In, well, how does a Democrat win in the state of Kentucky, period? But how does it, what's the pathway to victory for your campaign? How do you see it? I think it's relationships. It also, and, and that kind of makes me think about the, the federal races like the Mitch McConnells and the Rand Pauls. And I'm sorry, California. I know they're both from Kentucky, and I apologize for that. <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> but, uh, but I think it is about the relationships, you know, coming back to 2018 against a 20 year Republican incumbent who had massive money. And I did not raise massive money because I was the unknown grassroots and everybody thought I had no chance to win. Hmm. And so we decided that canvassing and knocking the doors, sweat equity, if you will, was the key to trying to close that gap. I raised about $40,000 and trust me, my Republican opponent ended up spending way more than that against me, which is actually quite flattering when you think about it. But I think the reason why we cut it down to the, those 772 votes, you know, and we did the impossible, is because of the relationships we established at the doors, talking to people and, and getting to know them. And I think that's the key. But I also think it speaks to the fact that I think the key for Democrats is we've got to start thinking local and not as much always about the federal, at least in your red states such as Kentucky. That, that's a very important point because I think the life support system for democracy, and that's kind of the theme of this show, is that the power, the local power, means a lot more than people think. And uh, mm-hmm. I think that the opposition knew that. And so had started to take over different school boards and water boards and kind of built their infrastructure for their elections that we're now seeing um, how, moving forward the way they are. Um, but tell me a little exactly. bit. Exactly. They've been playing uh, chess while Democrats have been playing checkers. It's kind of how I look at it. So for the last 20 to 30 years, they've been laying that groundwork, as you described. Now, East Kentucky and West Kentucky, will the twain ever meet? 
you know, thinking, thinking about that, it's really Eastern Kentucky and Western Kentucky are very similar in that they're rural. The difference, really, the question for me is, will the urban and the rural meet? Mm. So where your areas such as Louisville, Lexington, even the northern Kentucky area, which is right outside Cincinnati, for example, or even Bowling Green, which is a, a pretty a mid-sized city for Kentucky, those are your areas as far as can you get your liberal and your rural to meet, in, in my opinion. And <laughs> that's a good question. And I'm thinking, once again, about the relationship piece. And the thing about the rural areas, and I don't know how you feel about it or how your listeners feel about it, but in your rural areas, we all know, at least in the red states, that there's very much a strong conservative, um, even right-wing bent at this time. And that's very, very different from the Democratic side of things. And, in fact, I'll tell you right now, I, I have people on Facebook that I grew up with back home, and they'll they'll get on there and talk about devil Democrats. Well, hold on. The devil being the devil. Hold on with that, Paula, because this is Outspoken. You're listening to Radio 111, and we're talking to Paula Setsa-Kissak, a Kentucky candidate for State Senate District 12. Stay with us. She's fierce. She's bold. She's outspoken. Here's Radio 111's proud progressive, Joy Silver. My name is Joy Silver. This is Outspoken. You're listening to Radio 111, and we have been talking to Paula Setzer-Kasek, a Kentucky candidate for State Senate District 12. Thank you, Paula, for joining us today. We still have some questions for you if you're still open to talking. Absolutely. Love to. All right. So we did get to the East Kentucky and West Kentucky and will the twain ever meet? And I think, well, I think uh, I think you have a really good point about the rural and the urban areas. But one of the questions is, why do you think the people of Kentucky and vote against their own interest and continue the reign of Mitch McConnell? Why are they so in love with Mitch? So that's the funny part is people, you can pretty much ask anybody in the state of Kentucky, I don't care even if they're Republican, and most people despise Mitch McConnell. They'll tell you they don't like him. But the problem is he has Republican by his name. And I think that's coming back to what I was saying, getting to about relationships. You know, Mitch McConnell and the federal folks like a Rand Paul, for example, those people, they're really not real in a lot of ways to regular people here in the state. Because federal policy, even though, like you said, voting against your own interests, that's very, very far away. And so somebody like Mitch McConnell comes in with a Republican, Republican label, and he stirs up all the scary stuff by sending the mailers out about, you know, the crazy liberals and the caravans coming up from South America, and you name it. And he hits people, at regular people, the voters and so forth, and it scares them because it's kind of not real. And so I'm coming back to relationships. I don't know on the federal level here in the state if, if you can ever make those candidates real. 
And so that's why I come back to saying electing local candidates, whether state legislature, whatever, that is where you're going to change eventually the federal level here in Kentucky and get rid of the Mitch McConnells of the world. Because at the local level, getting to know actual people in your community that you may know can change the game with the Democrat and the Republican label. And I'll give you an example. So I think I ended up right before we went to commercial talking about the devil Democrats back in my hometown. Like I see people, literally people I know say those things. Now tell me about that story. So that is the the kind of almost what I would describe like a brainwashing propaganda mentality that has really permeated the entire nation. If we're honest about it, It's, it's gone everywhere. And so, and the things like Mitch McConnell helped perpetuate by doing that type of thing. But in 2018, a lot of these same people that that will sit there and call Democrats are devils and they're against God, you name it. Just you think of it, you you pretty much know where I'm going there. In 2018, I actually reached out to people and said, hey, I'm running for, you know, Senate here in Lexington. Will you donate to me? And what's shocking is a lot of those same people that say some of the most egregious stuff on social media turned around and gave me money. Wow. But why did they do that? Right. They knew me. Right. And even though they knew I was a Democrat, they were, I think there's almost like this little mental barrier they're able to leap over where they're like, okay, we know Paula's not a devil and she's not some terrible, awful person that's out there doing crazy stuff as far as, you know, all the the crazy things they imagine Democrats do these days, the unknown Democrats, maybe I should say, Mm -hmm. you know, who they don't know. And those, some of those people were able to get past that. Now, some weren't. Let me tell you, I had some people trying to troll me. Uh-oh. People, <laughs> people you knew? I went to high school with that, that try to do things on social media, and, and I'm just like, okay, whatever, folks. But but I still was shocked by the number of people that I thought would literally turn me down, if not even say terrible things to me, who did not do that. And a lot of the comments that were made to me, whether they wrote me a note or we were talking on the phone, was like, well, you know, I know you're a good person and you've always listened to me, was a common refrain. You've never made fun of me. And so even though they know a lot of my beliefs are very different from some of theirs, that seemed to resonate. And I think that's relationships. Mm -hmm. I hope you have a good pair of shoes there, Paula, because... uh, (laughs) If you run for more than the district, and I'm not saying that's a small race by a long shot, you're going to need probably a couple of pair of shoes to get to everybody so they can personally know who you are. I think probably your being a teacher helped a lot with dealing with people in the field in that way, especially when they said you didn't put them down or, you know, you treated them, you listened to them. It sounds like that's one of the qualities that you brought to to your candidacy. Yeah, we knocked 20, I think we knocked tw- around 20,000 doors. My win number is supposed to be 24,000. And by the way, there's 103,000 total registered voters in my district. It's quite large here in Lexington. Yeah. But, you know, based on past percentages and all that, we had estimated 24,000. Actually, ended up being over 26,000 um, was my, I want, my actual votes was over 26,000. My goodness. But, like, I've got to ask the question that I know the listeners out there want to know. What happened in the Amy McGrath race? <laughs> Uh, talking about against Mitch? Yes. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay, so we've already covered the urban rule, which is what Amy faced uh, when she ran against Mitch. So she would have had Louisville and Lexington in her corner. But then you have a broad area of the rural. You know, you've got all the rural areas at Kentucky and so forth. And so the big problem she faced here, she already faced the, the rural conservative vote, which, she, which is what she faced against Amy Barr, right? 
but the problem was her rollout. Now, I don't know how much other people know in, in, in other states, but she came out pretty much right away and said that she would have voted to confirm Brett Kavanaugh for the Supreme Court. All right. Well, there's that situation. Well, yeah. I, I got to say thank you, Paula. Yeah. And I hope to have you back on the show. If you want to reach Paula, you can see her at Paula Setzer for State Senate District 12 in Kentucky. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Turning back the ugly wave of hate that seeks to divide. Joy Silver is Outspoken on Radio 111. My name is Joy Silver. This is Outspoken and we're here on Radio 111. Right here in the studio with the famous John McMullen and Carlos Garcia from Drive for Five. We're going to hear more from Carlos shortly. But before we do, I just want to say that we've got to stop those barbarians at the gates of our democracy because our subject is democracy. Is it dead or alive? Or maybe it's on life support. And one of those people who is here to talk to us a little bit about, well, maybe life support, maybe democracy itself, is Priya Vidula Engel. Good afternoon, Priya. Hi, Joy. How are you? I'm doing good, and thank you for joining us here today. I want to talk. I want to talk a little bit about you. Uh, you are a second-year medical student in San Bernardino County, and you hold mm-hmm. a Master of Public Health degree from Columbia University. And I know you've been working on public health policy in the in- in- Inland Empire to improve the health equity there. And you're also a communications chair of the Redlands Area Democratic Party. Democratic Club. Do I have that right? Yes, that's right. All right. Well, I've got some questions for you because democracy, dead or alive, on our life support, tell a little bit, tell our listeners about your experience with politics and what you are currently involved in. Sure. Um, So my experience with politics uh, started pretty late. Um, I'm an immigrant um, who was not a citizen for a long time. So when I um, finally got to vote, um, coincidentally, it was the first time that I realized I was able to run for office as well. So the first time I voted was when I ran for office and voted for myself um, at the age of 25. Um, since that time, I've learned a lot about, you know, politics and running for local office. So um, understanding the importance of local government, I helped run um, and successfully win a lot of local elections in the Inland Empire. Um, and outside of that, you know, I've been involved with uh, the Redlands Area Democratic Club in fighting for our democracy and pushing back against voter suppression, um, pushing back against laws that, um, you know, prohibit um, or you know, place a burden on women's health. Um, and then from a nonpartisan point of view, also I'm involved in public policy um, with a committee for nonpartisan organizations for women, um, as well as through the American Medical Association, where I'm advocating for medical students and underserved populations. So politics and policy at many different levels. 
Well, you're very busy. I, I knew that about <laughs> you. I know that about you. But And I really appreciate you taking some of your time to talk with us today. Now, the first time you were able to vote, you were able to vote for yourself. Is that what I'm hearing? Yes. Mm-hmm. And what drove you to become a candidate in that time period at 25 years old? Yeah. Um, so, you know, we learn a lot about uh, civic engagement and government when we're in, you know, elementary and public and high school. Um, and I recall we'd learn a little bit and I knew something about the president and I knew there were three branches of government and that was pretty much it. And then um, I went into the health field. Um, and so it wasn't until I started getting uh, my degree in public health policy that I realized how much of an impact policy and politics have on our day-to-day lives. Um, And so that's where I realized there's a lot of power in policy making. And again, at that stage, I was thinking, um, you know, as I was getting my master's, that politics was a, you know, only for federal and state legislators. Those are the only positions you can run for. Um, So when I, when I started doing research on my own, I found, oh, there are local positions that you can run for that anybody can run for. Um, And, and they don't really require too much experience, right? They just require you to live in the community um, and be of certain age and be a a citizen. And so I realized, you know, I have my degree in public health. Um, This is prior to the pandemic, mind you. And I was thinking about all of the things that we could do to advance health equity, you know, and and when you think about health, um, especially at a local level like city council, um, I think more about the environment. I think about um, our transportation systems. I think about the roads. Those are all ways to enact public health policy changes. So I was thinking, you know, I have my experience um, with my degree and I've worked for a little bit and I think I should do it. And so I, um, (laughs) without, you know, any inhibition, I was like, let's just, let's do what our founding fathers of the guts, let me try it too. So that's kind of what I did there. Wow. That's pretty brave, I think. But uh, you're a brave woman, I must say. You know, you're talking about that local level. And I think taking that power on every local level is very important, particularly when you're moving policy through and as it relates to public health. I know that you have particularly written about voting rights as a public health concern. Can you tell mm-hmm. our listeners about that? Yeah, so, you know, despite a worldwide pandemic, um, the 2020 election had one of the highest voter turnouts in the 21st century. And what that showed me is people want to be involved. People want to feel empowered to make decisions. Um, And in the same time period, in the same time frame, we've had a lot of efforts to restrict voting access through introducing, you know, various pieces of legislation, like shortening early voting times and removing same-day voter registration, limiting mail-in voting. So you try, then I started to think, you know, why, why are we, when people are trying to vote, why are there other forces trying to limit how uh, people can vote and the convenience of voting? And so, you know, we have these two forces and what people need to realize is that the health of our democracy is intricately tied to the health of our community. Mm. And that's why voting rights have to be viewed as a public health issue, because voting is that tool. It's going to impact policies that affect our social determinants of health, like I talked about with environment, roads, access to parks, access to healthy food. Um, but also we voting helps us to decide leadership. So as more votes are, votes are casted, right, or are cast and counted, 
our political leadership becomes more representative of us. So those are two reasons that voting helps impact health. But finally, there's another component to this. And what we found is that uh, multiple studies have found that the act of voting itself, showing up to the booth or turning in your voter ballot, has direct impacts on self-perceived health. Mm. So in the past, the expansion of voting, like when when we passed the women's rights uh, to vote in 1920 or the Voting Rights Act of 1965, these were linked to improvements in maternal and infant mortality rates. And it decreased black and Caucasian health disparities. So voting itself can actually decrease these health disparities aside from all of the other things. Um, so that's why I think, you know, voting rights is a public health concern and the effect, the uh, measures to restrict voting rights, you're directly impacting the health of individuals who want to feel that freedom to vote. That's an incredible tie-in to that and looking at public health and how voting rights impact public health and how it is indeed a public health concern. How do you see what's happening in this country and how is it affecting the health of democracy itself? Yeah, you know, I think now more than ever, um, people are, you know, and I'm only, I'm I'm 27 years old, so it's a little bit, I might be speaking, but, you know, just doing the research, because I started to think that why are we so divided and has this ever been has this ever happened before and the data shows that now more than ever we are hyper polarized there's extreme partisanship there's unwillingness to work with one another there's factions within our two main political parties so there's a lot of division and what i've also noticed is that health issues particularly you know of my interest have become politicized so that's why i see that's happening in this country we're kind of going in so many different directions and very unwilling to kind of work with one another. So especially when with the parties involved, it's not, you know, nowadays we're unable to pass things because it's not like, you know, I vote for your bill, you vote for mine. It's we're not going to side with you no matter what the issue is. And so that kind of hyper-polarization, that extreme partisanship is what is kind of what I see happening in this country. Um, And so it does affect the health of democracy because our democracy, things like voting rights and, um, and even, you know, just our individual freedom and our individual rights are being affected because everything is being politicized. And so that's where we see when, when we have so much division, then the, then the, Laws that we see are then to try and decrease, you know, one side's uh, ability to vote or one side's um, <clears throat> freedom of right, you know, freedom of uh, individuality. And, and so we see that with the women's rights issues and we see that with the voter uh, restrictions on voting rights. Well, I, I think that never have we seen public health concern uh, so obvious in the polarization as we have yeah. seen during this pandemic. And I know you've been talking about this even before the pandemic, that you've mm-hmm. seen this as the, a, a tie-in in that way. So I think you were on to something then, and I know you're always on to whatever's happening. You, you seem to have your finger on what's happening on the future before most of us do, Priya. <laughs> and I appreciate that about you. Um, what actions do you think we might take to support democracy? Do you think it will fulfill its promise to its citizens and to the rest of the world as a leader in the world? Yeah, I think um, so. You know, I think one of the big things, and, and today I think everyone is experiencing this, um, our social media servers are down. You can't get on Facebook. You can't get on Instagram. And um, I can't tell you how much, like, 
I don't know if it's, it's made me feel a lot better today. That's like <laughs> vastly improved my mental health. But I think media and especially social media is one of the biggest problems of our society today mm. because it's perpetuating these bubbles of confirmation bias, right? It's, it's making us believe that the things that we believe are the right things. And it gives us that information and feeds us these false narratives to confirm that what we believe and our biases are right. And then it allows for the rapid spread of disinformation and misinformation. So we have to curtail social media. We have to find ways to regulate it in a way that stops the spread of misinformation and stops this perpetuation of bubbles of confirmation bias. So that's one thing I would say is a big problem with our society today. Um, The other thing is, of course, we need more people to vote. We need more people mobilized and empowered to act change. And the issue is, you know, when we talk to voters, I've engaged a lot with young people um, and with a lot of our local groups in doing voter registration, as have you, Joy. You've done so much work in voter registration, getting more people involved. But what I think what we might, uh, and you might agree, is that it's one thing, It's first of all, it's a long process, right? We register people to vote. But I think the biggest thing is trying to sell people on why they should vote. And time after time after time, people feel that no matter what happens, their vote doesn't count because we end up with the same caliber of candidates And it's just a matter of like, we're just trying to save ourselves from the worst candidate possible. And so this has just led to like voter fatigue. So aside from just getting more people to vote, we have to empower them to realize that there are ways that we can change things and really focusing on key policy issues. If we can push in our generation two, three big policy issues that can have actual lasting impact, I think that's where people are going to start to see like, okay, now I realize the power of people. Well, you you never fail to inspire me, Priya. We are going to move. uh, It's getting to be that time. But I cannot tell you how much I appreciate your time today. You've been listening to Priya Vidula Engel, and she was talking to us about voting rights as a public health concern. This is Joy Silver on Outspoken here on Radio 111. has a voice and she's not afraid to use it radio 111 presents outspoken with joy silver now here's joy hi everyone this is joy silver on outspoken here on radio 111 if you want to call you can call us at 760-677-0111 right here in the studio today we're speaking to carlos garcia he is a resident of palm desert and he sits on the palm desert city finance committee he spent 40 years conducting marketing research studies He's a business owner, a college professor, and a grandparent. Carlos is the co-chair for Drive for Five, 
Drive for Five is a nonpartisan group of Palm Desert residents who advocate for five voting districts in the city of Palm Desert, right here in the Coachella Valley. So, thanks for being with us today, Carlos. Thank you for the invitation. Oh, yes. Tell us, what is Drive for Five about? Well, Drive for Five is an attempt to bring Palm Desert into reality. The, the, the demographic changes that, that the city has experienced are pretty dramatic. Um, in 1979, when the city was founded, it had 17,000 residents, and it's now well over 51,000, uh, well over 50,000. So, um, the, and the, demogra- the demographic composition of that, of that population has changed quite dramatically as well. So, um, but the, situ- the political situation was set up in 1979, where it basically it was all at-large voting, uh, which made sense for so small a community. But obviously, the city's changed a lot. The world has changed a lot. California's changed a lot. Um, and the, and P- Palm Desert, which used to be sort of, I don't know, way far away from Palm Springs um, and sort of this little almost semi-rural space, is now basically in the middle of the Coachella Valley. Mm-hmm. And um, it's really, uh, there's a large gay population, gay la- large Latino population, and large increasing African-American and la- Asian population, as well as the, the ongoing... Uh, uh, Native American population. So the city has really changed a lot, but the city council has not. Well, now I know that there's a, that it was changed into district voting, but what what kind of districts were created when that change came in? Well, the city was sued because they were not in compliance with the state law about you know uh, unfairly diminishing the power of political of uh, minorities, uh, and so they created this bizarre little quarantine area <laughs> this bar- bizarre little gerrymandered little district um uh, of where of in central palm palm desert where there was a large number of latino popu- a large latino population and they carved that out to satisfy the lawsuit uh spending more than a million dollars in, in in the process of trying to control their power so they g- gave away one district to the latino population um but kept the rest as an at large so we're saying, well, wait a minute, that worked for that district, but what about the others? What about District 2, which is, you know, has 40,000 residents in it? Um, and so it's really hard for anybody to run in that kind of context because then you're running against the big money uh-huh. because, it, you know, it really impacts your ability to, you were talking to other uh, other candidates about having to walk the streets, walk the walk your district. Well, walking 40,000 homes is not an easy thing to do. If you if it's 10,000, you can hope to start reaching out and connecting directly with voters. But with 40,000, it all becomes media and money and mailers. Um, and so basically, you're taking away power from the people and giving it to the moneyed interests. So that is um, what we're talking about today is democracy dead or alive, or maybe it's on life support. And what you're advocating is more districts in Palm Desert. Is that what Drive for Five is about? That's what the Drive for Five is about, to acknowledge that the city is varied, it's larger and growing, um, and the demogra- demography has changed. So um, we want b- these different districts to have rep- local representatives who can reflect the issues and concerns of their neighborhood. So some of the some of the districts are all at large. The how many? How four. many? Four? four. So four districts are at large, and there's one district that has a representative. In and of itself, is Correct. that what you're saying? That's Karina Quintanilla in uh, District 1. Okay, and what you want to change is making sure that each district has its own representation. Correct. Okay, how do people reach you if they want to be part of your drive? Well, you can look up uh, drive for 5 at info.com. It's not uh, in, at info.com. Um, it's um, 
it's not uh, a dot com actually. It's at at info. So it's driver five at info, and I have actually the the site up right now, and um, it's um, drive for five dot info. So uh, look it up. Uh, we have a really cool um, uh, logo that my husband designed, which is really beautiful. <laughs> I can verify that it is indeed beautiful. <laughs> it's a D R I V E four the number four and the letter and the word five F I V E. So drive for uh, drive four five dot info. So it's uh, the number four. Um, and what can people do to help you? Well, um, on October 28th, there's going to be a city, um, the city uh, com- uh, council will be holding a hearing, uh, a meeting, rather, their, their monthly meeting or bi-monthly meeting, um, and uh, they will be talking, discussing this issue. So we're hoping to have people to come and support the issue uh, at the city council meeting. Uh, we're also, of course, they can go to our website, they can donate, and they can contribute uh, time and volunteer in various ways. Well, thank you so much, because that's democracy on a very local level. And thank you to Paula Setzer-Kissack, Priya Vidula Engel, and Carlos Garcia, and all listeners as well. Thank you for joining me today. Coming up next week, will please join us, Mayor Colleen Wallace from Banning, Deserts Hot Springs Councilwoman Jan Pai, and California Black Women's Democratic Party Molly Watson will join us for a show that will be called R-E-S-P-E-C-T and we're not talking about the movie. <laughs> <laughs>